0: as we prepare to read God's word, as you know, we will be in the book of Genesis, the first three chapters for the, for kind of the foreseeable um, Sundays in the fall, at least up until the Advent season. And in your worship guide in particular, you have a copy of tonight's sermon text. It is marked for you a certain way for reasons I will explain later. But the biggest thing to know right now is that this passage of scripture is really written in some ways like a poem with different parts that repeat for emphasis. And for such a lengthy reading and to draw that emphasis, I've asked if Laurel and Smith and John and Jeremy would read it for us. I want you to listen carefully to these words from God's word, and I will follow up with a reading from the book of Hebrews as well. Let's listen to God's word together.
1: And God said,
0: Let there be light.
1: And there was light. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said,
2: Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind, on the earth.
1: And it was so.
2: And there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day.
1: And God said,
2: Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth, across the expanse of the heavens.
1: So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying,
2: Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, and let birds multiply upon the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day.
1: And God said,
2: Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds.
1: And it was so. And God made the beast of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good.
0: Now for the book of Hebrews. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. This is the word of the Lord.
2: Thanks be to God.
0: Let's pray together. Lord, in this moment, we ask that your spirit would hover Lord, above um, our lives, our hearts, that you would use these words in your word, in the words that I prepared, Lord, to give us a deep hope and a deep joy in you, we pray. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So one thing that you can know about me is that... I have these dreams that reoccur pretty regularly for me, like on a quarterly basis. Nobody freak out, okay? Um, Matthew Turnbow's brow got real furrowed when I said that. Um, And some of them are bad, okay? Some of them are not. Some of them are good. But one of the reoccurring dreams that I have about once a quarter is that I kind of shoot up out of bed because I am dreaming that I'm meeting with a professor of mine from either high school or college or graduate school, that much is not clear. And this professor of mine is telling me that I am expelled because I have plagiarized my paper, okay? And in that dream, Um, I tried to tell her that it was an accident, and that does not seem to matter very much. The people at four o'clock thought that was funnier than you did. (laughs) And I say that to you because I'm going to introduce tonight's text with an illustration that I have borrowed from someone else Okay, and that's just on my conscience. I, I, can't, I, can't remember, I can't remember where I heard this in this way. I mean, it's well attested, it's not secret, but I know I, I know I read this, heard this somewhere of several years ago and I looked all week and I couldn't figure it out, but just know I'm borrowing here, okay? Thank you for allowing me to feel better about that. But I want you to imagine with me for a second that you are a child and you're living in the ancient Near East. In other words, the world in which this story would have been written. The ancient Near East was this storytelling culture. Okay. You would gather around a fire perhaps at night and you would hear stories that would help you make sense of your life and your place in the world. All ancient peoples did this. And we do this in our own way too. And at certain times of the year, I think of my own family, the same stories are told at Thanksgiving again and again and again to remind everyone about how things are the way that they are, are, right? But if you were a child and you were living in the ancient world, the world of the book of Genesis, I want you to imagine with me for a second that you were not living in the nation of Israel, but you were living in one of the pagan nations that surrounded the nation of Israel. In particular, I want you to imagine that you were living perhaps to the east in the land of the Babylonians. If you were living in the east in the land of the Babylonians, perhaps you gathered around a fire at night and you began to settle in to hear the story of the world and how it was made. This is how it would have been told to you the storyteller in the village would have said to you, hey, let me tell you about the God Marduk. The God Marduk is this big, strong God. He's the most powerful God. He happens to be violent and unpredictable and kind of scatterbrained and reckless. But look up at what you see. You see those stars? Do you know how the stars got there? The god Marduk had a war with another goddess and at some point Marduk killed her and her blood splattered into the sky. That's how you got the stars. Or perhaps you would be sitting by a mountain and the storyteller would have told you, do you see this mountain here? Marduk one time slayed his enemies and he piled their bodies up on the earth. If that was the story of the origin of the world that you were told, you would have been told that God, this God Marduk, and that the world was violent and unpredictable and therefore you would have in your guts known that you were insecure and that you were unsafe. When you heard about this God who was so scatterbrained and reckless, you as a young child growing up in that culture could have had absolutely zero faith in this God's character. And I tell you all that to tell you that the way in which the Bible, the book of Genesis, the way in which if you were a child living in ancient Israel, the story that would have been told to you is completely and utterly the opposite. I cannot say that strongly enough. See, you would have been told, hey, do you see those stars? Our God made them. And he knows their number and he knows their name. And even more, he knows and he loves you. And if you were sitting next to a mountainside, the the story you'd have been told is, do you see that mountain, that high mountain? It's a sign that is pointing you to the love of God that is higher than any mountain. Y'all, there is a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of sermons that could be preached from these verses. I mean, we are gonna preach tonight and next week from these verses. There's so many sermons that could be preached. We could spend weeks and weeks and weeks just mining the depths of these verses. But I have this conviction that every sermon should really be as simple as it possibly can be. So what I want to do is I want to focus on these verses that we heard read for us. And I want to preach for you a simple sermon on what these verses in particular tell us about God and his character. And after telling you about what they say about God and his character, in particular that he knows what he's doing and that he's good. I wanna tell you a few things about your life and mine. I think in these verses that teach us something very rich about God's character, I think there is an invitation for you and for me. So we'll talk about God and his character from these verses and we'll talk about the invitation for us that lies therein. So would you take a look with me at our text? One of the things that stands out to you, and I tried to make it plain to you by giving you that copy of it marked in a certain way, this story, to be quite honest, is really not even a story, okay? It's really more of a poem. And the reason we know that it's a poem is the way in which it has a constant refrain, If you noticed, as Smith narrated the action and the events of the story, Jeremy kept piping up saying it is evening and it was morning, the first day or the second day or the third day. If you noticed, repetition occurred. Laurel kept saying, and it was good. And God saw that it was good. It's really more of a poem. And so, what we're going to do this week is we're going to look at the lines that are underlined red and the lines that are highlighted yellow. And next week, we're going to look at the words that are God's words. So, let's take a look at the lines that are underlined red. You'll find them in verse 3, verse 8, verse 13, verse 19, and verse 23. And if I can summarize, here's how it goes. Day one, God makes light and we're told that it was evening and it was morning the first day. It moves on. God makes the waters and the land and we're told it was evening and it was morning the second day. Day three, God makes plants. We're told it's evening and morning the third day. Day four, God makes the sun and the moon. Then we're told it's evening and morning the fourth day. Day five, the animals, in particular the birds of the sky and the creatures of the sea. And we're told that it is evening and it is morning. The fifth day, on the sixth day, there's land animals that are made. And we'll see in the weeks that are to come, then people are made. We're told that it is evening and it is morning. The picture of God that you're supposed to get from these verses is that he and you kind of get the sense of it that he's a god who makes a plan does the plan works the plan completes the plan and then moves on to make a plan do a plan complete the plan and then he moves on to carefully create a plan work the plan complete the plan In other words, what is being shown to us about God versus any other sort of rival deity in the ancient world is that this God, as revealed in the Bible, is careful. He's considerate. He's thoughtful. He's intentional, we might say. He's purposeful. He's calm. He's orderly. He's someone who is a planner. Y'all, somewhat recently, I went to work, not at the Grace Fellowship office, but at my house. And I made a plan to fix the electricity of my house. I went about my work, cutting things, testing things, turning off things, I think, and I could not get it to work. And at a certain point, In the infinite wisdom of Mandy Busby, she said to me, babe, I said, yeah. She said to me, how about we call someone who knows what they are doing? (laughs) And I said, okay. (laughs) that's the picture here in plain language god is shown to us here to be omnicompetent i've heard someone say knowing what he is doing there is something so deeply inside our hearts and our souls that we want to be led We want to be governed. We want to be shepherded. We want to know and worship a God who at the end of the day knows what he's doing. And what I'm here to tell you from these verses is that you and I serve a God who knows what he's doing, Now the Bible teaches us that Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature. So in other words, if we ever wonder anything about God and what that looks like, that we can look to Jesus to see how that fleshes out before our eyes. In this feature of God's character that he is careful, considerate, intentional, calm, orderly, knows what he's doing, is shown to us most especially in the person work of Jesus. It's interesting that when Jesus comes on the scene, as as we talked about last week, when he comes out of the water and the spirit of God descends upon him as he begins this work of restoring and making new creation, what's interesting is he immediately begins to enact a plan. He calls disciples, he teaches disciples, he heals, he walks into the village, He does work there. He moves on to the next place and nothing can actually get him thrown off what he has set out to do. There are moments where it looks like he's being thrown off, like when all the children come around him and he's really careful to say, oh, no, 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 let them come to me because my kingdom belongs to them. There's a time when he's gonna heal someone and he's on his way to going to heal and another person comes and grabs him. And his disciples and everybody are telling her to get away, but he stops and he heals because that's part of what he's there to do. He's perfectly on a mission. There's this place in the gospel of John where people are trying to take him and make him some kind of political king, and he he won't because he's focused. There's a place where they're trying to Make him some kind of political king and he'll simply say his hour has not yet come. He's not ready for that. This text shows us and Jesus makes it most plain that you and I serve a God who knows what he's doing. He's competent, he's thoughtful. He's got a plan that he is working Now here's the thing, that alone is not quite enough. Because if we served a God who was big and powerful and had a plan, that would not necessarily be great unless his plan was a plan for good. And that is the next thing that we see about him in this text. Notice the verses that are are the lines that are highlighted. Verse 10, verse 12, verse 18, verse 21, verse 24. And again, for the sake of repetition, let me just kind of summarize how it goes. God makes light, it's evening and morning. He declares and announces that it is good. He makes waters and land, it's evening and it's morning and he declares that it is good. He makes plants. It's evening and it's morning and he declares that the plants he made are good. He makes the sun and the moon. It's evening and it's morning and then he announces, assesses that the thing he just made is good. He makes animals and sea creatures and birds and he says that it's good. He makes land animals. It's evening, it's morning and he says that it's good. After he makes people, it'll be evening and morning and he will say that it was very good. Literally, it was good, good. This text is trying to get you to see that what God does with his careful plan is good stuff. The idea that God is good is one of his most central aspects of his character Y'all, there are certain things that I say again and again and again, and I honestly, actually hope they get stuck in your head like a song that you can't get out, okay? And one of these things that you're gonna start hearing me say a lot hits on this idea. And it's this simple truth that what God is is what God does. See, for God, his character and then his actions are the same. God's essence, who he is inside and what he chooses to do are the same. God is what God does. So God, in his essence, deep down inside of himself is good. Therefore, every action that flows from him is good. See, you and I can act out of step with our character. The great news is that God can never actually ever do that. God's more simple than we are in that way. He's not divided, in other words. His character and his actions are the same. And throughout the pages of the scriptures, the Bible is going to make an enormous deal of God's goodness. And I want to just kind of sketch it for you kind of in in a little bit of a scattered way, to be honest with you. First of all, when, when the Bible talks about God's goodness, it sometimes means God's moral perfection, the idea that he does good versus evil. But most often, the Bible is going to talk about God's goodness as God's kind of boundless generosity, his boundless desire that he has to bless. The Bible will present it a little bit like a fountain, like from the essence of who he is, he just has this desire to bless his creatures. It flows out of him, okay? Um, it, it's, it's often paired with his mercy. So, so, give you an, so just to give you an example, it's the fountain by which all the other things that God is and does kind of flow. So for example, let's take the example of mercy. God deep down inside of him wants to bless people. He wants to offer them good gifts. But at the end of the day, a lot of people, in fact, every person is sinful and they stubbornly resist God. Well, in order that God would then bring blessing, he has to apply and enact a thing called mercy. Mercy is the thing that flows from his goodness in order that he can bring blessing. Goodness in the Bible, God's goodness in particular in Psalm 23, we're told that it follows us. It pursues us. It's literally haunting us. The idea that every time we turn around, God's goodness is coming after us. I'll say more about that in a second what this text is trying to get you and I to see is that evil and violence and chaos do not rule reality. Is anyone here tonight excited to know that evil and chaos and violence do not actually rule reality? But instead, according to this text, at the center of all that there is is a good God who wants to bless the world. Now, of course, this feature of God's goodness, again, is shown to us most especially in the person and work of Jesus. When Jesus shows up in the scene, on the scene and he begins to work, he begins to heal because he wants to display and bless. He begins to teach because he wants his goodness to flow out. Okay, His ultimate demonstration of his goodness is is when he goes to the cross in order to give himself for you and for me. It's the ultimate picture, and the scripture teaches that he'll return one day, and his he'll return one day, and this fountain of his goodness will flow fully, all the way to every corner of this broken world. This text shows us a God who is careful, who is considerate who is intentional, who is calm, who is orderly, who is planned, who knows what he's doing. And the things that he chooses to do are good things. So I've told you what this text, at least some of what this text teaches about God and his character. As a way to aim it at your heart tonight, I want to talk to you about what This text teaches you about your life. If this is true, and I firmly believe it is, then there is an invitation for you tonight. So I want to offer you from this passage three invitations. One of them is light. One of them I think is deeply comforting and one of them is kind of heavy. So when you serve a God who knows what he's doing and is good, invitation number one, you are invited to enjoy God. It might be a long time since you were in a church service and a preacher looked you in the eyes and told you, you should enjoy your life. But what I'm here to tell you is you should enjoy your life. You should enjoy the good gifts in particular that God has given you. God desires for you to enjoy him. It pleases him for you to enjoy his gifts. See, your life and my life become sort of like a beautiful scavenger hunt where God's constantly showing us his goodness and his grace and it's everywhere. His gifts are literally everywhere and you're to enjoy them. Everything that he gives is is a hint to you. Everything that he gives is a path for you to walk down and pursue. For example, every bite of food you've ever eaten that was good was a sign that was pointing you to the giver of that, God. Every time you've heard the giggle of a niece or a nephew, That was a hint that was trying to beckon you and lure you to a good God. Every time you have sat down and had a extremely hot, I like it extremely hot, an extremely hot cup of coffee with no sugar or cream, by the way, that was a sign. And when you had that moment of rich conversation, When you had that moment of rich conversation, it was in order to lure you to see the goodness of God. Every single time someone has touched you in love, it was a sign pointing you to the goodness of God. When you hear your own children screaming and having fun back there, I just heard Leland. He was enjoying church, and it was a sign that was pointing all of us to the goodness of God. This is hard to believe, but when you go to work in order to use your gifts to serve this world, that is a path that you were supposed to have walked in order that you could experience something of the goodness of God and the way he provides, not just provision for you, but an opportunity to bless others. Invitation number one from this text, if God knows what he's doing and all that he does is good, you are invited to enjoy him. Enjoy him. Secondly, from this text, if God knows what he's doing and he is good, you're invited to trust him. God has a, if it's this God we're talking about, has a perfect plan that he is carefully implementing always. So much so that he even promises to take things and make them useful. For our good. You can trust Him. You know, there was a time, somewhat recently, a few summers ago, Mandy and I went to California, and we were on the central coast of California, the area called Big Sur. Man, it is the most beautiful place I've ever been in my life. The way that the clouds and the fog roll in and then they kind of roll out, and the way the sun shines there, the way the sea breeze just has a saltiness about it. This is the area of California that you always see on TV. It's like where the cars are are going along the tiny road on the cliffs. And down below, I mean, you can literally hear seals um, barking. Is that what seals do? Um, You can hear the waves cascading. just thunderous. It's the most beautiful place I've ever physically seen. And there was a time where I quietly got to sit there for a few minutes. And in that moment, it was like God said something to me louder than out loud. I wonder if you know what I mean. It's in that moment that God, it's like he said to me, you can trust me. You can trust me. These waves, this breeze, this sun, these cliffs were made so that you, Joel Busby, could know that you can trust me. Y'all, I want to tell you tonight that you can trust God. You can trust him. Third invitation that I think this text offers. It's a little more heavy. And I'll say it like this. If you're going to know this God, be in relationship with him, trust him, then that means by definition, that you're going to have to walk by faith rather than by sight. Because, and I don't have to tell you this, we can't always see what he's doing. He knows what he's doing, but we can't always see it. We're gonna to have to walk by faith because some of the things we see that I'm doing, it's not immediately obvious to us how that thing can be good. This is the exact connection that the writer to the Hebrews makes that I read for you. The writer of the Hebrews says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It's the certainty of things not seen. It goes on to say, just like God made the world from invisible things, often God will be doing things in your life and mine that we can't see clearly. Sometimes this is our fault. The Bible teaches us that our own sinfulness can blind us from seeing him. But sometimes it's not at all. And our circumstances can cloud our vision. Y'all, somewhat recently, I went to the eye doctor, um, I was starting to notice that my vision was, I think I could say, blurry, or at least when things were up close, it would be blurry for just a second, and then all of a sudden it would sort of get focused. Does that, does that make sense? Or that my vision was strained, like I was starting to have headaches because I couldn't quite see clearly. Things were blurry and unfocused. And I went to the eye doctor, and they did all the stuff. And uh, the eye doctor, she just very matter-of-factly told me, well, sir, we're going to write a prescription for these glasses. And I said, what? And I said to her, I literally said to her, what happened? (laughs) And then she said back, well, Mr. Busby, I'm looking at your charts, and you're 39. That was the end of the sentence. (laughs) sometimes we can't see clearly. And sometimes as we get older, walking around in a broken, fallen world, it gets fuzzier. But the promise of the scriptures is that one day we will see clearly. Right now we see dimly, the apostle Paul says, but one day we'll see clearly. And the scriptures teach us that in that moment, when Jesus returns and makes all things new and right, our faith will become sight. We'll see clearly. And what seems blurry in your life and mine Will become clear. And in that moment, the clear picture you will see will not be the answer to all your questions. According to the scriptures, the picture that will become clear in that moment will be literally the very face of Jesus. The Bible teaches us that in that moment, we will not be disappointed. And what our Lord promises us by the power of his spirit is before we arrive at that clear day, that he will grow in us faith, that he will provide for us faith. He will provide it for us in increasing measure. He'll enlarge it. You and I serve a God who knows what he's doing, who is good. We can enjoy him We can trust him. And we can, by the power of spirit, walk by faith. Let's pray. Lord, these things are easier to talk about than to live. So God, our prayer is that by the power of your spirit, that you would give us a fresh sense of joy, and the things that you have done for us, a fresh sense of joy in your perfect, holy, good, careful, thoughtful, considerate character. or that you would strengthen us, that we might enjoy you and walk by faith and trust you. We pray that you would do these things in us for your glory and for our joy, we pray. Amen.